It's Monday, February 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The first test of unity and bipartisanship in Congress has presented itself. President Joe Biden has supported a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that could be passed without Republican support. But 10 GOP senators have presented their own slimmed-down bill in an effort to get something passed. Will a compromise be made? Also, a week out from Trump's impeachment trial, the legal team has not been set. A weekend shakeup has left the former president with no defense team as of yet. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this and how Congress intends to look into the GameStop buying frenzy on Wall Street. Next, childhood obesity is an ongoing problem that has only been made worse by the pandemic. The huge disruptions to the regular school year has impacted the amount of movement school kids are engaging in, as well as their diets, and it could have a lasting effect on their health. Kids tend to gain weight over the summer when there's no school, and for many, the pandemic has been similar to a 10-month summer break. Furthermore, some of the most nutritious meals many kids were eating were in school settings. Sam Block, staff writer at The Counter, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I support passing COVID relief with support from Republicans if we can get it, but the COVID relief has to pass. There's no if, ands, or buts. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. President Biden has his $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill floating out there. He wants it to get passed. He wants uh, it to get done really quickly as well. But we just saw 10 GOP senators come out with their own plan. This is somewhere in the range of $600 billion. Uh, You know, it's got uh, money for vaccines, continuing this $300 unemployment benefits, $1,000 direct payments to Americans instead of $1,400. You know, this is going to be an interesting moment. Joe Biden has been calling for unity, for bipartisanship. Will Democrats want to work to get something smaller done? Yeah, this is going to be a big test of what lengths Democrats are willing to go to to be bipartisan. This is not everything that they want. You just detailed some of the things that are missing in this bill that had been in Biden's. And the big question, I think, is going to be what do Democrats in the Senate do? there's this route they could take where they do it alone and they don't include Republicans. It's sort of this uh, archaic process known as budget reconciliation. It's the same process that Republicans used a few years ago to pass their tax cuts without any Democratic support. Or they could try to find some bipartisan agreement. There's a lot of allure to that. One, uh, they can say it's bipartisan. They can go to voters and say, look, we did something. And two, that sort of like trick to get around needing Republican support could be used for something else. Uh, they could save it for another issue that they know they're not going to get any Republican right. support. You know, we've been passing these bills kind of regularly, let's say. We don't know how much longer the pandemic will go. It seems like it's still going to be some time. So maybe this could be the right call. Do something a little smaller, more targeted, as Republicans have said that they want to do, and then do something again later. It's going to be a tough one. I know uh, Joe Biden had said he wanted those $1,400 stimulus payments. Uh, It's just not all going to be there. But with 10 Republicans on board, maybe that can just push it over the edge. I do think that if they do something smaller, it doesn't sort of close the book on ever getting anything else done. Congress appropriates money every year. There's going to be opportunities every year for them to continue to fund things or even passing separate bills. 
And I do think that there's a lot of allure, including yeah. the Biden, to have this be bipartisan. So I would not be surprised if they take that route, if the votes are there, if yeah. they can come to a, a deal. Well, it came quick. So let's see how this uh, first big test goes on that front. The other thing, obviously, the Biden administration trying to wrap their heads around the vaccines, boosting up distribution, boosting up production. It's been a tough go. There's reports that they're trying to locate 20 million vaccines that were sent out. It doesn't mean that they're lost completely or anything. They just haven't gotten reporting that those have been administered. So they're having a tough go at the distribution so far. You know, they were warning people before that Biden took office that they didn't have a really great idea of what the plan was. And then when they got in, that they didn't think the plan was very good. And we're seeing that and them trying to adjust and make changes to try to get the plan in place that they think will best distribute these vaccines. I mean, Trump was criticized really from day one from how he was handling the virus and its response. And I think we're just seeing the the end of that. I think that it's going to be a really short window before people start blaming Biden for this. And right. they're aware of that and they're trying to get ahead of it. And I think that the big question for Americans, there was always going to be a window, I think, between when the vaccine was created and approved and when people were able to get it. And I think yeah. that people were always going to be frustrated in that window. The question is, does that window close in February or is that window still open in May or June? Right. I mean, the ball is in his court. He campaigned on it. He really has to get it under control. That's all the things that he said he was going to do. So yeah, you're right. There is a window, but how long that window remains open is the big question. And, and they really do have to get it done. Moving on, wanted to talk a little bit about the Trump impeachment trial. It's set to start on February 8th, but a week out, basically, the Trump legal team hasn't really seemed to be fully formed. Last week, there was a few people, a few lawyers that uh, they were throwing out there that were going to be part of the team. Now we're hearing that anywhere from three to five main lawyers that they were going to use are not part of the team now. You know, it's kind of this one of these weird things that 45 senators said that this whole thing is unconstitutional. So it doesn't seem like he will be convicted, but he still doesn't have that legal team set up. Even if you went into a trial knowing that the votes on the jury weren't there to convict you, you'd want a legal team to make a legal argument yeah. because you never know that it's going to happen at the end of the day. And we really, as you saw, the former president's legal team sort of imploded over the weekend. They all left. It's unclear really who's left of his legal team. There seems to be some division over strategy. Some reports that Trump wanted them to argue that the election really was stolen and they didn't want to do that. That would seem to not help him in this process yeah. uh, if he did. So I think we're going to see uh, it all over the place. And there was talk in, among him and his aides about him writing a letter to defend himself, to be read on the Senate floor. I really think that this is going to be one of those things that his campaign used to say they were building the plane as they landed it when he ran for president. Uh, that might be the way that his impeachment defense goes as well. And the last thing I wanted to bring up, uh, GameStop, the buying frenzy on Wall Street was the story of the week last week. It's definitely spilling over into this week. You know, it's kind of this uh, a story of big Wall Street hot shots fighting against Reddit small investors. And Congress, there was this moment of bipartisanship also when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz were agreeing that Robinhood, the investment app, shouldn't have closed down trading on GameStop and other ones. So now Democrats want hearings on this. What can we expect from this? Yeah, we've seen Chairwoman Maxine Waters has already called a hearing to try to 
get more information about what happened. I mean, the whole thing, how some Reddit posters were able to really drive a stock like that. Could this be done again? Could it be done to harm a stock instead of helping it? And then, like you said, why Robinhood cut off that trading, why that decision was made, what it should there be rules about how platforms like that, firms like that can do that. So this is not an issue that's going away anytime soon. And you're right. This was like one of those bipartisan moments where sort of the populist wings of both parties joined together. And and it's actually kind of surprising we don't see that more often. But this was one of those times that uh, they were a bit unified. Yeah. And and how they go about fixing this or they want to fix it will be different. You know, the left, it's uh, big Wall Street is the enemy. The right, it's putting uh, limits on uh, on the free market, things like that. So the way this will play out is going to be different, but it's just an interesting, uh, you know, a point of commonality there. So we'll see how it goes. I, it, this is going to be the story of the week again, I, I can assure you. So we'll see what happens. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another one told me they had patients who were going into the 85th percentile where you're clinically overweight, into the 95th percentile where you're clinically obese. Some were telling me they saw kids who were putting on 10 or 20 pounds since the pandemic started in March. I spoke to one who said that she had a patient, an 11-year-old girl, I believe, who put on 40 pounds during wow. the pandemic. Joining us now is Sam Block, staff writer at The Counter. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to bring you on to talk about child obesity crisis that started before the pandemic, has been made much worse over this time. It's kind of a, one of these things where one healthcare crisis is exacerbating another. And we're hearing a lot from pediatricians saying that a lot of their patients, kids obviously, are coming in and their charts are increasingly pushing them into the obesity category. And a lot of this is, can be tied to schools, kids being out of school school lunch programs, which are super important in all of this. So, Sam, tell us a little bit about this. You mentioned the childhood obesity crisis was a problem before the pandemic. According to the most recent data that the federal government has, a little over 19% of school-aged children are obese, and there are some predictions that that will rise, the extent to which is not known yet. But I spoke with a researcher who studies summer weight gain, He looks into what happens when kids are out of school. And he figured that if kids were out of school for five months this year, the national obesity rate would rise by another 4%. So that's just five months of typical out-of-school activity. And that's related mostly to uh, poor diet because kids aren't getting the healthy, nutritious foods that they normally eat during the school year and also surprisingly sedentary activity. I think a lot of people tend to think of summer as a time when we're running around at the beach or playing sports, but kids actually spend more time in front of screens when they're out of school. So between the inferior diet and the sedentary activity, the summer has a lot of similarities to the pandemic. And again, this prediction that the obesity rate is going up 4%, it's just a prediction. No one really knows what's going to happen, but that's just for five months out of school. We've now been out of school for 10 months, and we have these extenuating circumstances like um, rising food insecurity and poverty. So pediatricians, public health experts, even some dietitians I spoke to for my story are afraid that this could get really bad. Start me off with some of the pediatricians and dietitians you've talked to and tell me about what they're seeing in their patients. 
So I spoke to pediatricians in the Bay Area. Uh, I spoke to one in Portland. I spoke to one in Minneapolis. Their stories were very similar. They have patients who are coming in who are, you know, as young as, say, five, six, seven years old, who used to be in the 25th percentile for their body mass index. So that's a way of gauging your relative height and weight. And they went from the 25th percentile to, in a matter of months, the 75th percentile. Now, being in the 75th percentile isn't itself a problem, but when you gain that much weight over such a short period of time, that worries them. That's one pediatrician. Another one told me they had patients who were going into the 85th percentile where you're clinically overweight, into the 95th percentile where you're clinically obese. Some were telling me they saw kids who were putting on 10 or 20 pounds since the pandemic started in March. I spoke to one who said that she had a patient, an 11-year-old girl, I believe, who put on 40 pounds during the pandemic. As kids are growing, they should be gaining weight. But when you're gaining that much weight so quickly, pediatricians worry that 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 could have adverse health effects and that they're not going to lose that weight as they get older. We've been hearing about coverage about this throughout the pandemic, the quarantine 15, you know, people were kind of uh, jokingly giving it that name, you know, but if that's happening with normal adults, people who can take care of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. It's also happening to our children and it's diet is part of that. And this is kind of where a lot of school lunch programs really come into focus and how important it is both on, you know, kids actually getting meals, but also the nutritional part of it. I think this is what drew me to the story was just hearing from people who were concerned, not so much about quote unquote empty bellies, but the quality of the food that kids were eating in America starvation usually isn't the consequence of poverty, it's obesity. And part of the reason why people are so concerned about kids missing school meals is that for, I think, 22 million school children who live near the poverty line, school lunch is actually some of the healthiest food that they can get. Now, you and I, we probably grew up at a time when school lunch wasn't so healthy. We're probably thinking about sloppy joes and you know, fatty. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. But but that's changed during the Obama administration. And at the time, you know, I think there were a lot of jokes, a lot of thanks to Michelle Obama about school food that looked pretty unappetizing. Yeah. You're but right. the fact is these school lunch changes have impacted child health for the better. Kids who eat school lunch have to eat a certain amount of fruit every day, a range of vegetables from leafy greens to legumes. They have to eat breads, pastas, and muffins, and other grains that are made with at least 50% whole grain flour, uh, which is richer in dietary fiber, so it helps the body, um, it helps keep down body weight. School lunches also had to cut back on saturated fats and conform to age-specific limits on calories and sodium. That's part of an effort to drive down hypertension in teenagers. And again, all of these changes, the evidence is suggesting that this has impact child health for the better. Kids who eat school meals every day consume more fruits and vegetables fewer fats and sugars, they have better diets, lower weight, lower rates of unhealthy weight gain. And as an epidemiologist told me, it's not just that school lunch is healthier than it used to be, it's healthier than a bag lunch brought from home. And now enter the pandemic, remote learning, you know, how do you even feed kids that are not going to school? And on the other side of things, cafeteria workers and whatnot, they're not actually cooking a lot of these meals anymore because of the way these rules have changed. So now they're doing a lot of prepackaged, processed foods, which could be worse for these diets. And it's important to remember that the cafeteria workers who have been putting together these meals for kids who aren't even in classrooms a lot of the time, they deserve a lot of credit and they deserve a lot of praise for being on the front lines to help these children. That said, 
there are some very real changes to the way they're able to put together these meals. You know, staffing is down. There were a lot of rules initially that were about the safety of even cooking in the first place. It was thought that, you know, packaged meals wrapped in plastic were going to be safer to transmit and safer to distribute. And as a result of a lot of these federal waivers that have just made it easier for cafeteria staff to put bag lunches together, to go on routes and delivering meals, you don't have the hot, nutritious, scratch-cooked meals that kids normally have in the cafeteria. You don't have the salad bars, which a few dietitians told me made them really sad. You know, that for years they'd spent time working on kids, kind of training and convincing them to get into leafy greens and legumes and vegetables they wouldn't normally like by giving them the option of going to salad bars. That's all gone now. You have a lot of frozen foods. You have a lot of shelf-stable foods, processed foods, frozen burritos, salty snacks, chips, fruit juice, vegetable juice, things that aren't bad per se, but if that's in place of the healthy, nutritious meal that you used to eat, kids are missing out on a lot of nutrients this year. And and again, this change was made to make it easier to feed kids. So what are the challenges going forward? I mean, there's a lot of long-term consequences because of this. Um, You know, what are those consequences and what are health officials, what are schools trying to do to remedy that? The long-term consequences, I think, you know, the dietitians that I spoke to who worked on revamping school meals after the Obama reforms, one long-term consequence might be that kids are going to lose their taste for vegetables and they're just going to sort of revert back to starchy potatoes and and salty snacks and and Uncrustables and Pop-Tarts. The other is the more serious consequence of childhood obesity, because 67% of kids who are obese at five years old will be obese at 50, and 90% of obese adolescents will remain obese adults. And when you become an obese adult, you have higher risk for conditions like diabetes and hypertension, potentially fatal medical events like heart attacks and strokes. So this all just kind of adds up, and we worry, and when I say we, I mean the public health experts and the epidemiologists I talk to, worry about the long-term health consequences of this, I guess, generation of pandemic kids. In terms of what we can do about that, obesity has so many causes. There's no one silver bullet. Yes, the changes to school meals, and yes, the fact that kids are missing these school meals and eating other food at home uh, is contributing to it. It's not the only thing that's contributing to it, but if we do want to attack and work on the diet piece, I heard over and over again that the main thing that schools have to do is return to these Obama-era standards for for nutrition and for what goes in meals. Your uh, listeners may know that at the very end of his administration, Donald Trump uh, was able to push through rules to roll back, I'm sorry, he pushed through rules that rolled back restrictions on on whole grains and sodium and flavored milk. People want those all to return. They want meals to be healthier again. Um, And when kids do return to school, I kept hearing from people, it's going to be more important than ever to realize that school is a place of learning, but it's also a place where bodies grow and we right. need to recenter and think about kids' health as part of what, what they gain and what they and what they lose when they're out of school. The big disruptor of our lives right now, the pandemic. So we're going to be studying this for some time to come. We're going to learn from it. And I hope that we get better policies out of it because, you know, we've always had this child obesity crisis, especially, uh, you know, more recently. And, and for this to kind of make it worse, uh, you know, just keep setting us back. So hopefully... We can get a handle on all of that. Sam Block, staff writer at The Counter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.